My, uh, my lords, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, good morning everyone. And uh, thank you very much, Mark, for that introduction, although uh, probably slightly more revealing than I'd anticipated. And thank you for the news, uh, Mr. Pendrith and the audience, uh, for, for such an auspicious nomination. Um, it's with a bit of trepidation that I address you today, and it's not just because the marquee reminds me of a best man's speech you gave about ten years ago. Um, the, the Camden Day Lecture has been something of an institution for the last 30 years, and it's a strong fixture in our food industry calendar, and something of which Camden should be suitably proud. Glancing through the list of previous speakers, which of course include the two noble men on my right, um, it reads like a very impressive and truly comprehensive who's who of the food industry and the people who've influenced our sector's development over the last 30 years. So why have you asked me? Well, um, looking back over the history of this event, I found a possible reason. And uh, it's over 20 years since someone gave this lecture in their capacity as president of the FDF. So it's probably our turn. Um, I also spotted that my predecessor as the FDF president speaker was called Ross, that he'd previously been a chairman of Unique, I just assume that Camden thought that, well, if the two of them can survive that kind of posting, they can probably survive the day lecture as well. But thank you very much for giving me the honour and the privilege, and a particular thanks to my cousin, who pinned me in the corner and asked me very politely whether I was prepared to do it. And of course, you realise with members of the family that they've got far too much on you for you to even contemplate saying no. But I wouldn't have anyway, because it is a great privilege and honour to join the list of such a, a, an august group of people. Interestingly, only one woman appears on the list, and that was Dame Deirdre Hutton, who was the successor to my Lord John Krebs as chairman of the Food Standards Agency. And Deirdre, of course, as we all know, is now in the unenviable position of judging when it's safe to fly in the current volcanic climate. I, I think I'd rather be in my position than hers right now. But I mention her in passing because despite our efforts as an industry to nurture the best talent over the last 30 years, irrespective of sex, creed or colour, the senior echelons of our industry, like so many parts of public life, remain stubbornly male-dominated. So my prediction, the first of which I'll make today uh, in my speech of food in the future, is that when Camden celebrates the 50th anniversary of this lecture, the balance of that list of speakers will have changed dramatically as more women will have had the opportunity that I have today. But predictions, of course, are dangerous things to make. If you just Google the internet and uh, itself dismissed as an irrelevance 15 years ago, it just shows how unsuccessful we are at predicting the future. Ken Olson, who is the founder of Digital Equipment Corporation, famously announced in 1977 that there's no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. And now you struggle to educate your child without one. And more recently, of course, not many people predicted that before, before 6th of May that the UK would end up with a coalition government formed by the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats. I remember standing, speaking to a similar audience at our FDF dinner, jokingly referring to Julian Hunt, our Director of Communications, dusting off the manifestos. Well, we had to do a bit more than that. But you can hopefully appreciate why I might 
approach this lecture with some nervousness, given that it's about predicting the future and talking about the food industry in the next 20 years. But in particular, I want today to spend a little time thinking about how the world might appear in 2030 from a food sector perspective. As many of you know, that date is significant for all of us in industry, not least because DEFRA, our sponsoring government department, recently set out its vision for a sustainable and secure food system by 2030. So, what sort of issues will the 52nd speaker at the Camden Day Lecture be addressing in her speech in 2030? Well, I think there are some pretty big themes emerging around which there is a growing consensus amongst academics, futurologists, politicians, campaigners and industry leaders. There are obviously some outliers, but I think there is a broad consensus. The first of those consensus is that there will be an explosion in world population growth in the next 20 years. We'll be up at 8 million by 2030, rising to 12 billion by 2050, all of whom will need to be fed. Not an encouraging prospect when you consider that 1 billion people go hungry every day, largely, as we all know, through the inequitable distribution of food globally. People will also be living longer and societal demographics will continue to change, particularly in more developed nations, with some predicting that one billion of us, or one in eight people, will be aged 65 or older by 2030. And that's double today's figure. Even before 2030, we'll start seeing tangible evidence of the long-term challenges that will be posed to the planet by the impact of climate change not least through glowing global shortages of valuable resources such as water. With more mouths to feed, the UN Food and Agriculture Organization believes that the planet will be need to be producing 50% more food by 2030. Now, we can disagree whether it's 35 or 40 or 65, but it's going to be around that number. And rising demand and climate change impacts also mean that we can expect much more certainty and volatility in the price of basic food stuff and ingredients in the next two decades. Food security is no longer an issue that we can take for granted, not just globally, but here in the UK. And just to add to the fun, we may also be approaching, or indeed have passed, peak oil production by 2030, at a time when our energy needs globally will have almost doubled. But if we step away from such potentially gloomy analysis for a moment, I think we should feel positive about the future because history tells us that we in the food industry have a strong track record of rapidly responding to societal change like that and of evolving our business models so they're fit for purpose and of adapting our products and our processes to make sure that we meet new and emerging consumer needs of the kind I'm predicting. And we also know that we start from a good place. The food and drink sector is a high-value manufacturing industry offering genuine world-class capabilities in area of production, logistics, sales, marketing and innovation. And I feel I'm at the home of one of those today. These are our inherent strengths as an industry and we'll have to continue leveraging them to maximum effect over the course of the next two decades if we are to remain productive sustainable, but above all else, profitable. 
Let's just reflect for a moment on the changes we've witnessed in British society over the last 50 years. In the post-war years, food accounted for about one-third of disposable income compared with 10% today. The average family size has almost halved. We now have far more people living on their own and there are more of us crammed into this island and we are living longer and getting older as a nation. With more people working, the way we eat food has changed. We now spend less than 20 minutes preparing our main meal compared with an hour 40 years ago. But we as an industry have taken it all in our stride and the food chain as a whole has responded in so many different positive ways. For example, consumer innovations such as frozen foods and chill-ready meals, oven-ready dishes, convenient microwavable foods are now part and parcel of our lives every day. We take them for granted. And closer to home, supply chain and manufacturing innovations such as the Chorleywood bread process, small cheer, the barcode, and the advent of just-in-time production have changed the way we make food and changed the face of our supply chain. And we've had continuous retail innovation from the first self-service supermarket in the 50s to today's growth in online shopping to the explosion in affordable options for eating out of home. Consumers and society have benefited from our efforts and our success. Since the Second World War, we've delivered food that's safer, more nutritious, tastier, and more affordable than ever before. There's a much wider range of choice for people than at any time in our history, with year-round availability. When was the last time you went into the supermarkets and the shelves weren't fully stocked, with 98% of what's on offer? As we look ahead, you could argue that consumers in 20 years' time will be no different from their grandparents in the 1950s. They will want us to keep on delivering as wide a choice of products as possible and to keep offering outstanding value for money. And all of that, to my mind, begs an obvious ethical question. Is it right that society continues to behave that way in a resource-constrained future? And there are clearly... I think, huge gaps between how we think today as citizens and how we actually behave when we go on that supermarket shop as consumers. And if we're to make progress, we do need to close those gaps. And to me, it's obvious that the next generation of shoppers who are only just being born will put more emphasis on values than value per se. And there will be a growing awareness of the broader sustainability issues which will in turn lead to increasing consumer interest in where ingredients are sourced, in how they're grown, and how the food is actually made. And by 2030, I think that we'll also see more consumers going back to the future, with meaningful numbers growing their own food and buying local produce. Changing purchasing habits will clearly send out strong signals to us as an industry, and I think we'll respond very well. But my vision of a values-led future is predicated on the pretty big assumption that government, industry and others will be able to work together to help consumer, consumers navigate through the complex issues so that more of us start behaving as concerned citizens.
there is a very big job to be done educating consumers so that they can make better informed choices about the food and drink they buy. They can feel empowered to improve their family's diet and lifestyles and can take real responsibility for minimising their own impacts on the environment, not least through unacceptable levels of food waste. But if education is critical, it's going to be ever more difficult for any of us to influence consumers at a time when Alexander Pope's view that a little knowledge is a dangerous thing has never been truer. And you don't need Bill Gates to tell you that consumer-facing technologies will continue to transform not only the way we buy food, but also to continue to shape our knowledge about what we're eating. And I'd like to say a little bit more about this. But first, some food for thought. Did you know that in 1997, as New Labour came to power, only 17% of us had a mobile phone, and it was about the size of a suitcase? Only four of us actually had internet access at home, and they were probably uh, senior executives of computer companies. Today, on the back of what was supposedly the digital election, 93% of us carry a mobile, all of which are hopefully switched off, and 73% of homes are connected to the web. And in that brave new world of mobile phone apps and social media, the technological ideas that frankly sounded fanciful a few years ago now appear perfectly reasonable. A fridge that knows when you're running low of food and places an order with an online grocer, but only choosing what you need to stay healthy using sound dietary advice based on GDAs, of course. Daft? Perhaps, but not far off. The geeks in the room, and I know of at least one, will know that companies such as LG Electronics have been trying to commercialise something called the Internet Fridge since the beginning of this decade. It's only a matter of time before my cousin Brett gets one. (laughs) As some of you will know, he is a man that has four mobile communication devices on his person at any one time. And he's what is technically known as an early adopter. So I expect by Christmas to see one of these devices in his domestic setting. In fact, we've entered, I think, a new era of consumer empowerment through communication, where it's pointless trying to pretend you can control the key messages, where transparency won't be optional any longer for any company. Every aspect of your business is under intense scrutiny. In fact, what you do at the weekends is clearly under intense scrutiny, as I found out this morning. From the way you market your products to the honesty of your country of origin labelling you provide on packs, you will be noticed. And all of us need to be ready to embrace this revolution. Consumer feedback, good or bad, is now virtually instantaneous. Today's Twitter backlash may be tomorrow's sales collapse or the end of a political career, as we've seen in a few occasions. Now, this is either really exciting or extremely worrying, depending on your point of view. But I think technology will have a profound effect on our lives between now and 2030. On the consumer side, smart packaging will become a reality, helping reduce waste by keeping things fresher for longer and telling shoppers when food needs to be eaten. And despite our sector's focus on ruthless efficiency, we'll also need to 
deliver greater levels of personalization and customization, internet-abled, no doubt. On the production side, we'll clearly keep investing in ever more efficient equipment, efficient processing equipment that helps reduce our energy and water usage and keeps our waste to a minimum. On the supply side, modern biotechnologies, including GM, offer some potential to improve the quality and quantity of food available. And by 2030, we will have to, inform, have to have formed a clearer view about the environmental, safety and consumer benefits of GM. I worry if we haven't. And I really would urge the FSA to battle on regardless in its research. I'm convinced that technology in all of its guises will play a vital role in underpinning the food industry's collective response to a future world impacted by the challenge of climate change and energy choices. I also recognise we can't expect society's response to the challenges ahead to be solely about changing consumer behaviours in the hope of creating a demand-side solution. Industry, all of us, need to step up to the plate. As part of our strategies for adapting to a resource-constrained future, the entire food chain is going to have to do more to encourage greater efficiency of resource use. Very simply, more will needed, be needed to produce with less. And to paraphrase Prince Charles, his nibs yesterday, we need to fix the well and we need to fix the pump. As many of you will know, members of FDF are already demonstrating what manufacturers can do through our five-fold environmental ambition reducing our carbon emissions, cutting our use of water, using less packaging, aiming to eliminate waste to landfill, and increasing the efficiency of our transport operations. And all of that not only improves our sustainability, but it makes goodness, good business sense by reducing costs and increasing our productivity. It's not all about the environment, of course. In its most basic definition, sustainability is about how we embrace environmental improvement social issues and economic development all at the same time. So we have a clear responsibility to keep responding to other equally important societal concerns. Otherwise, some of today's big headaches are going to remain unresolved. For instance, all of the evidence suggests that not only will, be, will we be older as a nation by 2030, we'll also be fatter. That poses ongoing challenges for industry and for policymakers around issues relating to both the quality of life and public health. From our perspective, we are rightly proud of how our sector has already reacted to the complex challenges such as obesity. Food manufacturers lead the world in terms of their voluntary action in improving the recipes of our popular brands, introducing new reduced calorie choices and appropriate portion sizes, and the improved information around nutrition that we've all put on our products. We now market products more responsibly, notably through initiatives to restrict advertising to young children. And we use the workplace to promote the importance of healthy lifestyles. And government has a positive place to play in guiding food choices, albeit with advice that's based on sound nutritional principles, not dumb nutritionalism. But when it comes to tackling complex lifestyle issues such as obesity, I remain convinced that the most successful approaches 
are those that are based on empowering healthier choices rather than trying to control individuals through either taxes, bans or other diktats from on high. And we've seen over the years that the best results will always come from when government work in genuine partnership with industry to educate individuals to be more aware of the impact of the choices they make in terms of both diet and exercise for themselves, their families and ultimately society. But what about the final pillar of my definition of sustainability and that's economic development. I believe that if industry is to keep responding over the next 20 years to the changing shopping behaviours of better informed consumers and invest in strategies and technologies that help us mitigate the impact of climate change to ensure our continued food security here on this island, we can only do that if we have a successful food manufacturing industry here in the UK. And by successful, I don't mean just profitable. That's the fundamental challenge facing us and government today. Maintaining a thriving, innovative and profitable food system in the UK to 2030 and beyond has to be an overarching government priority in its own right. And we need clear and consistent and coherent policies coming out of Whitehall. We need a political, fiscal and regulatory framework which promotes the efficiency of resource use, stimulates innovation and attracts the investment that's going to be needed if our industry is to continue to thrive over the next 20 years. UK policy making needs to be proportionate and balanced with a clear focus on maintaining our sector's ability to compete and to build future capacity here rather than overseas. And multinationals have that choice. Critical, perhaps, to the success of all that will be government's ability to work with industry to agree a shared vision of what we think a healthy, low environmental impact diet actually looks like. There have been some great brains on this in the last 12 to 18 months, but we're not there yet. And that's because it's complicated stuff. We'll need to adopt common methodologies for proper life cycle analysis of impacts across the whole food value chain. And then we'll need to use these in ways that promote rational decision making. None of that is easily captured in simple soundbites. So I do get a bit frustrated when I see so-called experts telling us that the answer to all of our problems is for British consumers to cut down on meat and dairy and reduce their intakes of processed foods. It's just not as simple as that. There never will be one clear-cut answer in this debate. Anyone claiming otherwise is being disingenuous, in my view. There will always have to be hard trade-offs that re reflect personal preferences, incomes and cultures of the many different population groups that inhabit our island. A diet that is healthy will not necessarily be low impact. For instance, vegetables grown in greenhouses in the UK have a high carbon footprint, but then vegetables grown elsewhere have a damaging water footprint. What's more important for the environment? And if we don't buy fresh vegetables from Africa, how does that sit with our responsibility to help economic development overseas? And what do we want to do? Encourage consumers to eat more vegetables, which may be buying more frozen and canned produce, or encourage them to eat only UK field-grown seasonal vegetables. These are the dilemmas that we need to start talking about and resolving. And the answer 
to all of these questions and a myriad more clearly represent different sets of challenges, choices and trade-offs for the government, for the food chain and ultimately consumers. We can't address these issues as if we existed in the splendid isolation of Great Britain from the rest of the world and from the potential global impacts of climate and demographic change, environmental degradation and future shortages of fossil fuels and water. In that future global context, the question for government is actually pretty simple. What should we be doing today to maintain the UK's food security for tomorrow? Is it really trying to stop the production of meat and dairy in the UK, thus running the risk of externalising our environmental impacts offshore in the short term as, impacts, as imports increase, as well as undermining our ability to respond to long-term changes in food production and sourcing. After all, from a UK perspective, cattle and sheep kept on land that can't support any other form of cropping is surely an important use of that valuable resource. And let's not forget another important fact. As I've said already, consumers in 2030 will be in many ways behaving exactly the same way as shoppers today. They don't want to live in a drab world of limited choices where we buy food that looks grey, smells grey and comes in grey packets. They want food that's tasty and they want food that's pleasurable, whether it's eating a nice slice of toast for breakfast or chomping an indulgent treat or sitting down with the family to enjoy a Sunday roast. Will the food industry still be able to deliver all of that in 2030? As I said at the start of my lecture, predictions can be a dangerous thing. And I'm not blind to the massive challenges that lie ahead. I understand that by 2030, we'll be living in an increasingly uncertain world. But my vision of the future is not all that gloomy. I predict we will be delivering the goods in 2030. And I remain optimistic that in 20 years' time, we'll have an industry that has successfully adapted to the changes happening all around it just as we've always done. I believe that new skills, technologies and innovations of the kind that Camden produces will have underpinned our efforts to become even more resource efficient and ensure that we're well equipped to meet the needs of a new generation of better informed and even more demanding consumers. I also see an industry that's working in genuine partnership with government and others to tackle public health issues such as obesity and getting to grips with the emerging nutrition challenges posed by an ageing population. And in doing all of this, I predict we'll continue to be profitable, and we'll be a sector that's grown in size and is providing thousands of jobs across the country, as well as a vital output of an economically vibrant British farming community. But if my optimistic vision is to come into reality, my challenge to government remains. It's not taken us for granted. Develop the national policy that reflects a key strategic role for food and drink manufacturers and work with us to ensure that our sector is in a fit state to meet the challenges of 2030. Otherwise, I predict an alternative vision for the future of food that I frankly think is far too unpalatable a thing to contemplate before our lunch today. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>